Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you, as always, for listening. I am very happy to have Mark McKenna on the show. He is one of Australia's leading historians and a professor of history at the University of Sydney. He is the author of several award-winning books, including From the Edge, Australia's Lost Histories. His most recent publication is called Return to Uluru, The Hidden History of Murder in Outback Australia. Great to have you here. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Eric. No, it's great to be here to talk to you. So how did you come across this story? And at what point in your research did you think it would make a good book? Yeah, that's a good starting point, I guess. I, I've known about, I'd known about the shooting of this Aboriginal man at Uluru in Central Australia in 1934 for probably more than 10 years. And I was planning to write a very different kind of book originally. That book was going to be a history of the whole of Central Australia. And I I suppose for you listeners in the US, it's important to realise that the centre of the continent, of the Australian continent, occupies a particular place in the Australian imagination, if you like. It's, uh, it's long been associated with romantic myths of pioneer exploration. And uh, there was a time when people dreamed that there was uh, very early on that they dreamed that there was water or an inland sea, some sort of fertile area that would, uh, that would uh, bring millions of people to the centre of the continent and usher in development but of course those dreams didn't happen so the center's long been a place of myth and the outback um that's a word that most of your listeners will know um the center's kind of beyond the outback i guess (laughs) it's a place that is thousands of kilometers from where most australians live 90 percent of australians live on the eastern seaboard and most of them live in large uh, cities, which are large even by US standards, more than 5 million people. So the centre is sparsely occupied uh, even today. And it's a region where you still feel 
the presence of Indigenous cultures much more visibly than you do in other parts of the country. So that's just a bit of background on on the kind of the play, the the, the feel, the atmosphere, the the history of the centre in Australia's um, uh, European history. Um, so I'd known about this story of the shooting in 1934 for ten years. And it was only when I went to Uluru in 2012 and I stood on the spot uh, near a waterhole where the shooting by a policeman had taken place and I started to ask myself questions about, you know, being on site when you're there in the place where where something has happened, you you see things differently. You know, if you're just reading them on, on a through documentary sources, it's a very different experience. But when you're there where it happened, you start to see, ask questions, I guess, that you wouldn't normally ask. And once I started to do that, then I wanted to look more into the circumstances around the shooting. I wanted to know more about the policeman's life. I wanted to know more about how this had happened and my book about the, the history of the whole of the centre of uh, Central Australia became gradually, uh, the way I describe it is that, that at some point um, my book, the book I originally planned to write, was hijacked um, by this story. And this story uh, took over because it had increasingly, as I kept going, you know, I saw it had so many elements that made it quite unique because here was an episode of frontier violence that occurred in the very place that Australians have turned recently in the last 30 or 40 years, Uluru, into the spiritual centre of the country. So I was in, I just wanted to know more and, and that was the starting point. I, and I, I suppose I, looking back now, I think I've written the biography of one moment in one man's life and its ripple effects in indigenous cultures and settler cultures. Interesting. Yeah. So for my listeners who don't know what Uluru is, can you describe it uh, physically and then describe its significance to the indigenous people of Australia? That's a good, yeah. I'll I'll do my best, Eric. It's a, it's one of those natural phenomena that is so, that is so overwhelming when you see it. It is difficult to reduce into words, but I'll try. So, if you imagine a flat plane for hundreds of kilometres around, you're driving through this flat plane and you approach a monumental red uh, rock. It stands out from 30, 40, 50 kilometres away in the landscape. It's enormous. I've flown over Uluru a couple of times and uh, it's, I guess one way of, of describing it is it's like a, a cathedral, in a sense, and that's well. That's a word that that many European explorers used when they first saw it, when they were trying to compare it to to things that they knew. It it's 
it's because it's so magnificent, so monumental and stands out in the landscape from so far away that it is, it, it's an unusual natural phenomenon and it's become slowly, it's become slowly to be seen as, as the spiritual centre of the whole country. I mean, Qantas Airlines, Australia's national carrier, from the early 80s started to fly. There's, a, there's an airstrip there and large jets were flown in from the early 80s. So it's become a, increasingly become an international tourist destination as well. So for, for the local Indigenous people, the Ananu, um, the people of Uluru, of course, Uluru occupies as a special position and in their culture and their dreaming and their stories and is a sacred place for them first and foremost. So it's, it's an interesting site because if you like, you could say that it's a sacred place for Indigenous cultures and for whitefella as we call them, whitefella cultures as well. Both black and white see this place, black and white Australians see this place as a special place of national significance. Yeah, that would be how I'd describe it. And of course, you know, if you're cheating, just Google it and have a look at the image <laughs> on Google <laughs> and that'll give you a good idea. <laughs> sure. It's made of sandstone correct yeah uh, sandstone and arcos um and uh it the 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 colors you know the, the the display of color that you get early morning especially and at dusk i mean now with the tourism there's a car sunset uh, car park there's a bus car park where you can view the sunset and it's especially designed to appreciate the colors so it is a it is an unforgettable and quite uh, moving sight, I think. Um, also to walk around it, just to get up close to it and feel the scale and magnificence of it, um, is an, an whether it's dry or whether it's after rain, because of course, uh, when it rains, the there's vast cascades of water coming down the rock, and that's a magnificent sight as well. So it is an overwhelming place. It's also been turned into, you know, all sorts of kitschy um, tourist symbols as well. So, um, uh, but yeah, it transcends it. That's great. So this story takes place in the early 1930s. What was Uluru like during this period of Australia's history? Yeah. So um, if one, one really big point, I think, to get across is that uh, most of the areas where Australians live today were settled in the 19th century by the British and Europeans. So the, the settlement, the invasion uh, of Central Australia happened quite late in the late 19th century and it was ushered in by the building of the Overland Telegraph which really connected Australia to the rest of the world and that ran, that ran from Adelaide in the south of the continent to Darwin in the north. Um, and that happened in 1872. And that brought a lot more um, pastoralists and settlers to the centre. Um, but it really was quite late. Um, so in the early 20th century, you could say that the centre of the country is still being colonised. 
the white the white man's imprint, if you like, is still struggling to assert itself, even in the early 20th century. That's a really important point to realise. Um, the other thing is that the white people who were there were outnumbered by Indigenous people. So there was a, a climate of racial anxiety. There was a climate in which whites felt extremely vulnerable. They were concerned often for their safety. If you look at newspaper reports at the time in Central Australia, you'll find that uh, you, you see headlines like treacherous natives or the, the reports about the threat that the natives posed, Aboriginal people posed to the safety of, of uh, white settlers. So there was a climate of, of racial anxiety and, and the settlers felt vulnerable because they were outnumbered and also I think because they struggled to feel at home. This climate is quite severe. The extreme, the, the extreme heat, obviously, um, the dryness, uh, the difficulty of finding water, reliable sources of water. So, you know, at the same time that the settlers needed Indigenous people to show them where those resources were, uh, because without their help, they would never have survived. They also, I think, struggled themselves to feel at ease in this environment. So Uluru is 450-odd kilometres southwest of Alice Springs, which is the town of merely 25,000 people, which sits in the middle uh, today, which sits in the middle, rough, roughly in the middle of the continent. Um, at the time, in the 1930s, there were only uh, a, a few hundred white people in Alice Springs and a sparsely populated pastoralists throughout the rest of the of the centre. So that is the that's the kind of environment into which uh, Constable Bill McKinnon comes when he arrives to take up his appointment as a policeman in 1931 in Central Australia. Now, uh, Uluru in the late 20s, early 30s, is it under government control? Well, uh, it's certainly a place that is coming under the control of, uh, white, of white law. So, you know, the, the, the event we're talking about today is really a story which uh, comes out of this clash, this clash between European law British law specifically and white and, and Aboriginal law. Um, so it is ostensibly, I mean, if you're talking about when you when you say, is it under government control? Well, according to the government at the time in Canberra, uh, the Commonwealth government of Australia, yes, they would have said, yes, it's under our control. <laughs> but um, in fact, uh, the reality was quite different on the ground. So it was under control legally in terms of British law, but ab for Aboriginal people, it was there were still Aboriginal people in the 1920s and 30s living around and near Uluru. Um, their traditional lifestyle was still uh, continuing in many ways, despite the invasion. And this killing that took place at Uluru proved to be seminal because it was really the beginning of their 
going away from Uluru for probably two decades until they returned in the 1950s when tourism started to boom. So it was a, a very, very crucial thing for them because it, it did push them away from the area because of their fear of police and what might happen to other of their countrymen. Interesting, yeah. So Bill McKinnon, can you tell us a bit about his background? Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, that's, um, I mean, it's really these kinds of questions that started me off in a way. Um, I wanted to know more about him and how this happened because I wanted to understand, you know, really not just how this shooting happened and, as it turned out, um, crime. Um, I wanted to understand how Aboriginal people managed to survive the onslaught on their cultures. And so Bill McKinnon is one of a handful of policemen that are in Central Australia in the 1930s. And he's in his early 30s when he arrives um, in Alice Springs. Uh, he had worked in a, he was born in on the east of the continent in New South Wales um, to a farmer, a farming family. He'd done a range of different things in his um, in his youth and and early twenties. He'd worked on farms. He'd worked in the in the steelworks uh, south of Sydney. He'd worked as a, a jail warden in Brisbane. Uh, he'd worked as a policeman in Sydney. He'd worked as a policeman in Papua New Guinea because in the nineteen twenties, <laughs> um, Australia. Uh, had control of Papua New Guinea, and he worked as a policeman up there. So he'd done a range of different policing jobs. And in fact, he was dismissed. He was dismissed for insolence to his superiors when he was in Papua New Guinea. He received, a he applied for this position in Central Australia, received a telegram, and immediately took the position in 1931, remembering this is the time of the Great Depression as well. Jobs were hard to get. So he arrives in Alice Springs as a young, relatively young man in, in his early 30s with some policing experience in other parts of the country. And he's working with men, some of whom had just returned from the First World War, or, you know, not just returned, but they had fought in the First World War and then entered the police force when they returned. There was a military a connection, a, mili a military connection, I suppose, between some of those men who'd worked, who worked as policemen, some of the older men he was working with, and the First World War. And also, as I discovered, you know, there was there was an attitude within that police force that you had to demonstrate to the indigenous population that might the power of of the invaders. You had to keep them in their place. You had to demonstrate your authority at all times. And the police force had a long-established reputation for heavy drinking and quite brutal uh, tactics. So that's the kind of culture into which he arrives. How did McKinnon see himself in this role? Uh, did he consider himself even-handed within the indigenous community? I th yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, I think the answer to that is yes. I think that he thought, he saw himself as a, as an up, a man who, whose job it was to uphold the law, 
the law as he saw it, British law. And he would have said that he, and did say after he retired for many years, you know, said that he was doing his job and that he treated his all, all people um, fairly at all times. Now, of course, I think when you zero down into this incident, you can see that that isn't true. But I think the important one, of, obviously, with all history, you know, with all when you're doing this, I mean, you, you have to be aware of whether you're applying your own standards or the standards of the time. And I think even if you apply the standards of the time, right, in the 1930s, one of the things about this shooting was that there were serious questions about what happened, so much so that Australia's Commonwealth government decided to announce an inquiry into this shooting, Commonwealth inquiry, uh, the a year after it happened in 1935. So even by the standards of the time, there were serious questions about his behaviour in this case. And I think, you know, for your, for your listeners, it's important, maybe helpful to realise that only a few years before Bill McKinnon arrived in Alice Springs, there was a massacre. Uh, it's very well known in Australian history because it's considered to be one of the last, one of the last official massacres of Aboriginal people in Australia. That occurred in 1928 in Central Australia at a place called Coniston, northwest of Alice Springs, and at a range of other sites nearby over a period of several months, there were somewhere between 60 and 150 Aboriginal people shot and murdered uh, by a policeman and his Aboriginal trackers. That policeman was Constable William George Murray, who McKinnon worked with at various points. And he himself was a former World War I veteran. Murray was, there was an inquiry launched into that uh, massacre and Murray was exonerated. So that was, I mean, that massacre had taken place only three years before McKinnon arrived. Australia's under considerable international, increasing international pressure at that time to demonstrate that it was serious about, you know, protecting the lives of Indigenous people and that also, I suppose, you know, that, that ostensibly at least, or at face value, the announcement of that inquiry into McKinnon's shooting of this man in 34 was, was meant to say that the life of this Aboriginal man that he'd shot mattered as much as any other life. Now, <laughs> the inquiry into the previous massacre in 1928 was a whitewash. It was a cover-up. And Murray was exonerated despite the fact that, that there was considerable evidence that the killing had just been totally indiscriminate and unnecessary. So they were reprisal, when I say massacre, these were reprisals for the killing of, of in this case, uh, the killing of a white dog catcher. That was a common story in Australian history, that massacres were perpetrated because they were reprisals for for the killings of settlers um, or their property. However, the, the inquiry into that massacre in 1928 totally exonerated the policeman. 
I think that when you think when you you know when you realise that that that's happened just before um, Bill McKinnon arrives in Central Australia, um, you start to see the culture at the time, and you start to see how policemen were increasingly having to be wary of what they did and what they reported because the outside world, the eyes of the outside world were were coming closer and closer to what was really happening out there. And I mean, when I say out there, <laughs> that's another thing. You know, Bill McKinnon had what was called the Southwest Camel Patrol. Like he was patrolling this territory on camels, camels and horses. And that was something like 25,000 square kilometres. So can you imagine one policeman and his trackers covering this amount of territory? So it was out of sight, out of mind. Uh, and what often happened, not all of it got reported, not all of it was documented. So... Anyway, that's that's a kind of you know broad brushstroke summary of the of the kind of environment into which he's stepping. We will be back in a moment. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, seventeen seventy six, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was was a warning delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Raw lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook. Available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts.
Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. So you spoke of Aboriginal trackers. Um, mm. Bill McKinnon traveled with two trackers himself, one known as Carbine and the other named Patty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this is, you know, this is a, another very, you know, it's important to raise that question. I'm glad you did because it shows how complex truth-telling is, you know, the the desire that I'm sure many people in the US for, have for truth-telling about your history and what happened to Native Americans uh, there. And at the moment in Australia, we have, um, we have a push for truth-telling in our history, uh, specifically about what happened when the British invaded Australia. This, you know, asking me about those two men, Tracker Paddy and Tracker Carbine. Um, Tracker Paddy was renowned for his brutality. He was an Aboriginal man who had actually been involved in the Coniston mass Massacre as well. So he'd worked for Constable George Murray. Um, and Carbine, the other Tracker, they'd both, um, they'd both grown up on a Lutheran mission in Hermansburg, and that is sort of about 400 kilometres north of where this event happened at Uluru. So to give you an idea of the scale of distances here. But those Aboriginal men were employed by police uh, at the time on a contractual basis, on a, like, you know, according to a certain patrol, okay, we need so many Aboriginal trackers, and they would go and find those trackers for that particular patrol. Paddy, both Paddy and Carbine had long experience working for police and Paddy in particular had a particularly, a, a reputation for brutality and Aboriginal people knew him as, quote, a bad man. So much of the violence that occurs in this particular story is not only perpetrated by uh, whites, it's perpetrated also by Aboriginal people who are working as trackers for for the police the white policeman so so it's a, that's what i mean about the complexity of all this you know it's uh and i said this is the same in the us i'm sure you know that when we talk about the the frontier and the clash between indigenous people and settlers it's not a two-sided frontier it might begin in that way but it soon becomes very murky and so 
you know, you have Aboriginal people aiding and abetting the white invasion. You have Aboriginal people resisting it. Uh, it becomes very, very uh, messy, but that doesn't that doesn't negate the overarching reality of the loss of Indigenous lands and in some cases cultures that occurred because of the white invasion. And another big difference uh, for just, again, for people in the US to, to realise is that, you know, Australia does not have a history of treaty making. So in the, in the US, North America, there were treaties signed between uh, native peoples and the invading pa European powers, whether they be French or, or, or British. So that didn't happen in Australia because Aboriginal people were not deemed to be owners or occupiers of the land. They were deemed to be just wandering savages. So Australia did not have a history of treaty making. The land was just taken. And as one Aboriginal elder said to me when I was working on this story, you know, the white man came along and he put up the fences. And when he put the fences up, he just said, well, that's it. The land's ours. So, of course, you know, you, there's, there's a big argument, I'm sure, in the US as, as to the, 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 the way in which treaties really did make a difference or whether they actually were honoured or whether they were just a means of stripping uh, Indigenous people from, of their lands anyway. I mean, you can argue about, of course, there's, there's serious questions about the validity of treaties, but when you don't have any history of negotiation, you're in a different space entirely. And that's what happened in Australia. Fascinating. So uh, Bill McKinnon was assigned to apprehend uh, in 1934 some men who had been accused of killing an Aboriginal station hand, correct? Yeah. That's kind of what that's sets right. this all in motion. That's right. Emotion. And that, that killing... Um, the initial one um, that he'd been sent out to investigate was, as it turned out, a killing that had occurred under tribal law. So it, it was a group of Aboriginal men who executed another man because he had broken tribal law. Yep. And McKinnon was sent out to investigate that matter. Yep. So what is McKinnon's plan for capturing these men? Yeah, well, uh, he's he's uh, he's receives uh, instructions from from uh, Alice Springs uh, that uh, this Aboriginal man has been murdered, and probably with a rifle. Yeah, so he's sent out to an, and and that's important. The rifle is important because at the time, Aboriginal men working as station hands were not allowed to. To possess firearms, so that that brings in white the white man's law uh, straight away, let alone for the murder. So he he's got his trackers. He heads out to to the area where this has taken place, which is about eighty kilometres east of Uluru, um, and he is shown a group of Aboriginal men lead him to where the body is. Uh, he's shown the bot the side of the burial, he exhumes the body, and he, uh, as was common practice at the time, quite hideous practice really, uh, he decapitates the, the body, 
and takes the skull with him as evidence. Uh, he also, at the same time, shortly after, arrests six men uh, for the alleged murder of that man. Now, keep in mind that of those six men, five in the end were totally innocent, right? So he arrests six men and a few days later, he's sitting at a campsite around the fire with the skull of that man in his hand and he hears something rattle inside it and thinks it's a bullet. He's convinced it's a bullet and realises that when he looks at the skull carefully that this man was shot with a rifle. He then goes to those men that he's arrested with his trackers and, as we now know, through a process of what can only be called brutal intimidation, extracts confessions. Now, you know, you have to... Another thing to realise here is that, you know, Aboriginal people... Uh, did not speak a lot of English, of course, and nor did the whites uh, speak much of the local Aboriginal languages. So when we're talking about extracting confessions, it's it, the, the capacity for misunderstanding is vast um, on both sides. Now, he, he extracted those confessions, and shortly that same evening after, after being, you know, whipped and with chains and after being bashed uh, and all sorts of other hideous practices, those men escaped. And when Bill McKinnon woke up the next morning, he found the six men had flown. Now, of course, that would have made him extremely angry because one of the things uh, a policeman like him prided himself on was uh, not being embarrassed, if you like, by the fact that people he'd arrested had managed to escape. Now, of course, from the Aboriginal men's point of view, you know, um, if you imagine having been subject to treatment like that, you'd probably want to be looking for every opportunity to escape as well in case it happened the next day. So he chases those six men towards Uluru. Now, technically, you know, technically, under the white man's law, they are arrested prisoners who are resisting re-arrest, right? They're escaping. They're on the run. He manages to, with his tracker, Paddy, Paddy arrests two of the men, two of those six, along the way towards Uluru as he's chasing them for several days. And four of the men made it to Uluru where McKinnon managed to corner one man, uh, Jochen, in a cave. And this is the moment of the shooting. So... If, if you listeners can imagine this is taking place at a waterhole at Uluru and go online, have a look at Uluru if you've never seen it. And it's McKinnon is about 30 or 40 feet uh, from the bottom of that rock, pointing his pistol into a cave very close to a place called Mutajulu Waterhole today. The man he's cornered, Jochen, has already been shot at least once by McKinnon's trackers. He's wounded. He's defenceless. He's retreated to this cave and McKinnon is demanding that he come out. At, at one point, Jochen throws a stone out from the cave 
that hits McKinnon on his thumb. And McKinnon writes later, it quite disabled my hand for a while. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, it would have made him angry. However, remembering McKinnon is the one who's armed here, Njokon is defenseless. And then at that point, McKinnon fired into the cave. He claimed without taking aim, he fired into the cave because this man was resisting arrest. That shot hit Jochen and he then entered the cave with one of his trackers, Carbine, and pulled Jochen out of the cave, carried him down from the cave to the floor, to the bottom of the rock, and and he died shortly afterwards, McKinnon claimed, and he buried him there with his track. His trackers helped him to bury Jochen there. The other three men who he'd chased to the rock escaped. And the next morning, McKinnon decided not to continue in pursuit of those men, but to return to Alice Springs. On the way back to Alice Springs, a distance of, you know, as I said, 500 kilometres, he re-arrested one more man for the original uh, shooting of the Aboriginal station hand and returned to Alice Springs with two men who he argued were guilty of that particular murder. And they, there, was an, there was an inquest into, into that murder and those two men eventually were charged with, with murder and, and convicted for, to prison for 10 years of which they served eight years in the end. So, as I said earlier, you know, five of the men, five of the six men that McKinnon had chased were totally innocent, um, including the man he killed, Jochen. Now, there were serious questions about this shooting and word gradually came out, especially after the coronial inquiry into, um, into the original death that McKinnon investigated, um, of his brutality and his treat, poor treatment of the people, the men he arrested. And also there were serious questions about the shooting in, in you know, how, what, why was it necessary for a policeman to fire into a cave at a defenceless man who lost his life? Why was this necessary? How had this happened? And as I said before, you know, the Commonwealth government in Canberra thousands of kilometres to the southeast, uh, is after the Coniston Massacre, which made international news, especially in the UK, is very, very sensitive to uh, any suggestion that these kinds of events are continuing in the country. So it sets up this board of inquiry into the shooting at Uluru. And that board of inquiry goes out to Uluru in June 1935 to investigate the death of Jochen and McKinnon's treatment as well of Aboriginal people. Now, that Board of Inquiry is headed by John Cleland, Professor John Cleland, who was a very esteemed figure in Adelaide, uh, he was professor of pathology at the University of Adelaide. He was also a microbiologist. He was also, bizarrely, one of the people who, who performed more autopsies than anyone else uh, 
uh, in Australia. And he had a somewhat uh, grotesque at times interest in Indigenous diseases. So this is just a bit of background. So anyway, he was appointed head of the inquiry and uh, also on that same board of inquiry was a man by the name of Ted Strello, who was a linguist and an anthropologist, a man who'd grown up with Aboriginal cultures at Hermansburg Lutheran Mission and was very sensitive to the plight of Aboriginal culture and people generally. And uh, as well as four other men. Uh, so that inquiry goes out to Uluru. And who is leading the inquiry? You know, who is helping the inquiry look in, look into this event? None other than Bill McKinnon himself. So, <laughs> Wasn't <laughs> but, he like cooking them dinner? Yeah, that's right. So he was, he, he was the man they were investigating. I mean, this is one of the great, the great sort of, I guess it shows, you know, I said earlier that at face value, the inquiry, the fact that it was set up, you know, suggests that, well, the death of an Aboriginal man is, is just as important as the death of any other person. But then when you look at the way the inquiry actually operated, the man they are investigating is leading them around the country. He's, he's cooking them dinner, he's making them breakfast, uh, and he's showing them where, where they can find evidence and where they can talk to certain Aboriginal people about this and this and this. So it... <laughs> The, the inquiry, to some extent, is dependent upon the man they're investigating, which is, you know, obviously a point of conflict of interest, putting it mildly. Um, but it's, it's the, you know, the, the inquiry's visit to Uluru, as I try and explain in the book, is, is really, it happens at a very um, significant moment for, for the, in the history of, of the white man's imagination of Uluru, the professor uh, exhumed the body of Jochen when they arrived at, at uh, Uluru. And as uh, Strello, one of the other members, who I just mentioned of the inquiry, wrote in his journal at the time, we wrapped his bones in calico and we poured his entrails into a billy can and we took them back to Alice Springs. And this is permitted, this is permitted, he wrote, by the so-called white man's civilization. So ostensibly, Jochen's remains were taken back to Alice, quote, unquote, as evidence. At the very same moment that is happening, Strello and another member of the Board of Inquiry, Charles Mountford, are scampering around the rock taking photographs. And one of the most extraordinary things is that when that board of inquiry travels back to Alice Springs with that with Jochen's remains essentially in the camel boxes in the in the other camel boxes are the some of the first moving images of Uluru some of the first color photographs of Uluru so the white man's romance the white man's intoxication fascination with this place you can see that starting at the same time as you see you know the killing times if you like the end what is what it turned out to be the end of the, of the killing times almost you can see these two things traveling back to alice side by side 
the the reality of frontier violence still in the early 30s and the white man's fascination with this rock with this place called Uluru yeah and, and you I do believe you mentioned in your book that McKinnon not only considered himself a lawman but a photojournalist yeah. as well yeah he did he I mean and that's another thing that's quite fascinating about him as an individual he saw himself as much more than a policeman you know he saw himself as a a kind of uh, latter-day explorer who was helping to create the myth of the centre, the romance of the centre. He was a photographer. Um, He photographed himself. uh, A couple of these are in the book, but there's an incredible photo of him having a bath on top of Uluru, you know, after rain, of course, some of the rock holes fill up with water and he up, up right up on the top and he uses a self-timer very early self-timer to actually photograph himself having a bath up there he records his presence um not only climbing the rock but also photographs other aspects of his police patrols he writes about them he sends uh he sends articles to his brother in, uh, in on the east coast who arranges for some of those to be published um in newspapers so he's really trying to establish himself as much more than a policeman doing his job you know he wants to be seen as someone who is who is part of the history uh, a significant figure uh, in the history of the white man's claiming of the continent the interior of the continent so what was mckinnon disciplined punished for his role in all of this uh, yeah the, the the inquiry um you know the inquiry's torn you can see it's 650 odd pages of report you can see how different members of the inquiry really believe that mckinnon acted inappropriately but in the end the verdict of the inquiry is that mckinnon mckinnon's shooting of Jochen was quote unquote legally justified but unwarranted <laughs> ethically unwarranted but legally justified right it's having it both ways really but what that meant what that somewhat contradictory conclusion meant was that mckinnon was exonerated he was uh, found guilty of uh bashing some aboriginal people on the way to uh uluru at Hermansburg, he was found guilty of that, but he he suffered only a couple of. I think he's docked his salary was docked for two weeks, so it was a very minor uh, penalty. He was found not guilty of of the the murder of Jochen, and he told the inquiry, remembering that he told the inquiry that he fired into that cave without taking aim. In other words, he didn't fire to kill him, um, and he stuck to that. The uh, for, for the rest of his life, in fact. And Uluru would eventually be handed back over, right, to, to the indigenous community. What, what is the name of, of the group of Aboriginal people that inhabit that area? So it's, it's Ananu, um, A-N-A-N-G-U, Ananu. And... Yes, it was handed back in 1985 to its traditional owners. And interestingly, you know, it was um, that handback, that government handback of Uluru, was in part driven by this 
shooting in the sense that, you know, one of the men, as it turned out, that McKinnon was chasing in 1934, his name was Paddy Uluru, not to be confused with Tracker Paddy, okay, <laughs> who's another man entirely. One of the men that um, he was chasing, Paddy Uluru, was the senior custodian of one of the senior custodians of Uluru. So that story of the shooting was one of the reasons that Paddy Uluru stayed away from Uluru, right, for 20 years or more and came back with his sons, Reggie and Cassidy, in the 1950s to Uluru. And then he told and retold that story of the shooting because it was a, uh, it was an important moment because it, it it drove them away from the rock and it took them a long time to return and it it became a foundational narrative, if you like, in the history of Uluru for demonstrating the injustice of what had happened to those Indigenous people at Uluru. And it was part of the case for the handback, which happened in 1985. Yep. So again, he was reprimanded, slapped on the wrist for abusing the men he had captured. And, and it was the men who were sent to prison, right, that had testified against him. And of course, that meant that their stories of abuse were believed. Yes, they were. And the, the, the Commonwealth government received, you know, they received the transcripts of those interviews and, and uh, they, they, they had to act on it. Um, so, I mean, it was believed, but however, when it, you know, as we know, what happens in a court of law and what, is, what can be proved to be, you know, what, what you need, the onus of proof you require in order to convict someone legally is a very different thing to create, you know, to how you come to a personal view or, or a view about someone's, the rightness or wrongness of someone's actions. So, I mean, I think McKinnon would always argue that he was exonerated rightly because he was a law officer who was upholding the law and trying to apprehend a man who was resisting arrest. That was his position. However, you know, one of the extraordinary things about this story in the book, I suppose, is, you know, is that, and something I've never had happen before in my time as a writer and historian, is that I started, well, you know, I started to ask myself, well, I wonder if McKinnon's children are still alive. He, as it turned out, he only had one daughter. And just you know, by a stroke of luck, I found online a donation to the Queensland Museum of an artwork by one of Australia's most famous Aboriginal painters, Albert Namajira, to the Queensland Museum. And it was it was Bill McKinnon, it was a sort of, you know, wood wood engraving of Bill McKinnon's Camel Patrol by Albert Namajira, and it had been donated by McKinnon's daughter. So then I had her name, then I just basically went to the old-fashioned telephone directory and looked up, looked up all of the people with that surname, and f and eventually I found her in Brisbane. Um, she was in her early eighties, and she was very generous and welcoming. And she said to me on the phone, "Oh, look, I've got some things of my father's in the garage. You know, you know, you're welcome to come and look at them." And well. You know, needless to say, within a week or two, I was up there. And there in that garage, you know, to my utter astonishment, I found every journal that Bill McKinnon had kept in his life 
as a policeman. Uh, and after he retired as a policeman, he continued to log every day of his life, as I discovered, in, in a journal uh, with scintillating entries such as, uh, you know, I mowed the lawn today and had two beers or something, or uh, I, I, dro <laughs> I drove my neighbour to the local supermarket, you know. Um, but, but more importantly, and it was also every Marilyn Monroe film on Reel to Reel, there was in the garage a whole library of Central Australian history, of art. Uh, all of the photographs that he took were in, were in albums um, and there in one trunk, literally in, in this old trunk that I prized open in the garage was the, the very journal that he'd kept the morning after the shooting in 1934. And, of course... I, I read that very closely, and there, in his own handwriting, was the sentence, you know, the morning after he, he shot Jochen, he, he wrote uh, that he had fired to hit, he had fired into the cave to hit Jochen, hmm. which was the complete opposite, of course, of what he'd told the Board of Inquiry. So I had now in his own handwriting evidence that he'd lied to the Board of Inquiry. Yeah. And, you know, immediately it raised all sorts of questions like, well, why did he keep this? If, if all of his life he'd claimed that, that he just fired into the cave without taking aim, there in his own handwriting was proof that he'd done exactly the reverse. But why did he keep it? Uh, I don't really have the answer to that. I mean, I think, I think it's possible he came to believe Maybe he forgot that the journal was there in that trunk or maybe he'd just come to believe his own fictions. But there was the evidence that he was lying. And, you know, this was a huge shock not only to me, but it was also a shock to the family because they weren't aware of this. They weren't aware of much of the, um, the history of their Certainly, um, his daughter claimed that she wasn't aware and she'd also unfortunately started to suffer from dementia at the time and she was in her early 80s. But her children, all of the grandchildren, knew very little about their grandfather's policing career. So it was a big shock for the family. And the other shock that was about to come was that when I was there looking through Bill McKinnon's um, photographs and journals I was sitting at the dining table in his daughter's home when I had a call miss call on my phone I noticed that the phone number was an Adelaide number and four or six weeks before that I'd sent emails to the University of Adelaide and the South Australian Museum about this shooting and about the fact that the man Jochen's remains had been carried back to Alice Springs by the Board of Inquiry, just checking, wondering if there was any evidence that those remains had ended up at the museum or the university. And when I returned that call, um, I spoke to a woman by the name of Anna Russo who told me that the museum had 
Jochen's skull with his name etched onto it in their collection. And I found that out while I was sitting in Bill McKinnon's daughter's dining room in Brisbane. So this just the kind of, you know, that was really unnerving. At times I, of course, that's putting it mildly. I mean, I, at times I felt like this story had a its own rhyme and reason and I was just following it and it was just unravelling and just, and my job was to write it down. I know that's not rational, <clears throat> that's not very rational, but that's the way it felt sometimes. Um, so I discovered, I discovered in the space of 24 hours, I discovered not only that he'd lied to the Board of Inquiry, um, I discovered that the man he'd shot that his remains were still in the museum in Adelaide. Wow. And you were telling me before before we hit the record button that there have been some recent developments in the story. Yeah, very recent. In fact, um, I've, I've just got back from two weeks in Central Australia, and one of the reasons that I was, or the main reason I was going, I was up there was because when I discovered that Jochen's remains were still in the South Australian Museum, that was just as COVID was around the same time that COVID had hit. So it was very, it was almost impossible to arrange for the return of those remains um, because of COVID. Um, but finally, uh, a few weeks ago, on the 13th of October, which was, in fact, intentionally chosen as the 88th anniversary of this shooting, the South Australian Museum and the University of Adelaide travelled to, with their representatives, travelled to Uluru to return Jochen's skull to his homeland. And there was an enormous ceremony at, held at Uluru at the site of where this occurred all of the families, the descendants of, of not only the man who was killed, Jochen, but also others who were chased. Many of those families were there, and I flew up for that, to be there for that ceremony. And it was, it was you know, it was one of the most extraordinary things I'd ever witnessed as a historian in the sense that, you know, how often do you get, you just, to get the opportunity to follow a story through from beginning to this point of return is really rare and unusual. And I mean, I've, uh, yeah, it was indescribable. I'm trying to write about it now, actually. Um, I've got I've only got a week and a half till <laughs> to finish what I'm writing. Um, and I'm still trying to take it all in, but it was certainly, um, Incredible experience to see the families, all the 100, 150 people there, Aboriginal children scampering up the rock, playing at the same time as this ceremony and reburial is taking place. But, you know, to have that, to have Jochen's remains returned to his homeland and to have his family, families and all the families of the men who were chased and un, unjustly arrested was uh yeah was was indescribable and and yeah <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what more to say 
Yeah. Oh, gosh, it had to have been so emotional. Oh, I'll bet. Yeah. I mean, if people are listening and they're interested in that ceremony, if you, if you just Google return to Uluru, the Guardian, it'll come up. Uh, the story about the repatriation will come up. Yeah. So, so it's, it's yet another example, isn't it, I suppose, of how these histories, for, for Indigenous people especially, how these histories, how these, they're still very much present. You know, there's no, there's no such thing. The, the, the past, the so-called past is not past. It's, it's still very much in their face. And these, these kind of crowning moments of injustice resonate today in their own lives because they're still struggling to adapt and they're still trying to find a place in a situation where the white man's law is still imposed on their own law. And that's why Australia at the moment is looking at holding a referendum uh, next year, um, late next year, on the question of whether we should establish a constitutionally enshrined Indigenous voice to Parliament uh, because Aboriginal people are invisible in the Australian Constitution. They're not, they're not there. And so that is a, another burning issue of injustice that has to be addressed and, and hopefully that referendum will be successful late next year. And I guess for your listeners, you know, it's important in that context about the referendum to realise that the driving force for that referendum is a document known as the Uluru Statement from the Heart. That was a gathering of Aboriginal people from all across Australia in May 2017, where a document emerged known as the Uluru Statement, calling for a voice to be established, enshrined in the Constitution and for a treaty, and for truth-telling. And that that demand, that call, comes from Uluru, shows you the significance of this place for all Australians, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, and its power, its, its symbolic and spiritual force. And it's also, of course, the site of this shooting, um, so the call for truth-telling, the call for justice that happens, that is now happening nationally has a very real basis through this story that I've told at Uluru. Oh, fascinating. Well, well, thank you so much for giving us some insight into what's happening in your country, um, some of the questions that are being asked and some of the discussions being had so, as I said in the introduction, you have other books as well. Uh, I know Return to Uluru is available on American Amazon and other places in the U.S. as well, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, and uh, it's, it's available throughout the U.S. Uh, it's published by Penguin Dutton. So, uh, yeah, it was published uh, only a few months ago to, yeah. So quite recently. <laughs> so there's still time to get the story out there. Yeah. Well, well, great. Thanks again for your time. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Eric. It's been a really, really good conversation. I really appreciated your questions too. So 
I hope the listeners uh, get something from it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Again, I have been speaking to Mark McKenna. His book is called Return to Uluru, The Hidden History of Murder in Outback Australia. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.